I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. Some are famous, some are rich, some are both, and some are neither. But they're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. You'll hear life stories of celebrated TV and film stars, musicians, producers, comedians, composers, and rock stars, to name a few. And that's just to start. We also explore the surprising journeys of entrepreneurs, doctors, business people, athletes, and CEOs you may never have heard of, but we'll be glad you did. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Today, we welcome Yolanda Hadid into our studio. Yolanda's probably most well-known for starring in the hit reality TV series, The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. But before becoming a star in Beverly Hills, Yolanda grew up from her humble beginnings as a farm girl in Holland and reached international success as a supermodel. She graced the pages of magazines like Vogue and Grazia and walked the runway during New York's Fashion Week. Since her modeling days, Yolanda has rebranded herself as an author and TV personality. Her memoir is called Believe Me. In it, she reveals what her life was like dealing with the disability she suffered when she contracted Lyme disease and the extent of her search for treatment. Yolanda is a supermom to her own daughters, Bella and Gigi Hadid, both of whom are successful supermodels in their own right. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with. Yolanda Hadid. Thank you for having me. So you're from a small town in the Netherlands, which I tried very hard to pronounce. I'm going to ask you to pronounce it for me. It's called Papendrecht. You are a self-proclaimed farm girl. What was it like for you growing up on a farm? Tell us a little bit about your parents and your early life. You know, my life was very simple. People find it hard to believe that in my childhood, I'd never seen a fashion magazine. I had two pair of shoes a year, one for summer, one for winter. And, you know, fashion was just not part of my thinking process. Neither was it part of my life. My father died when I was seven years old, which obviously was life-changing. Was he sick? He was. He died in a car accident. Oh. I remember sitting on the church bench, looking at my family. They were all to the left of me, and everybody was crying. And I was so little that my feet were dangling under the bench. And I remember looking at them going like, I cannot cry. I have to take care of this family. And it's my job now to to be the strong one. But what I forgot was that I was seven years old and really the youngest one in the family. But I think that that really changed my life. And, um, you know, I knew in that moment that I had to get out of that little town and make a life for myself outside. Were you Obviously, close to him? Yeah, I mean, I was like a daddy's girl. And it made me tough. At that moment, I took my pain and all my sorrows, put it in a box, locked it, threw away the key, and on with life. You know, tough little girl. That's a tough thing to do at seven. Yeah, but I didn't have the tools to do it any other way. So, But I also think that that gave me, you know, such determination to get through any obstacles that have come my way since then. Did your mom remarry? No, my mom never remarried. She dated never remarried, and she really dedicated her life to my brother and I. 
Is he older or younger than you? My brother is 18 months older, and he's still in Holland. My whole family is still in Holland. Yeah, so my life, even though it wasn't a very fancy life, it was a beautiful life. My mom used to sew me dresses. We played games. We had dinner at 6 o'clock every night. It was a very, you know, a very orderly life. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you there were no cell phones. I went off at 6 o'clock in the morning on my bicycle, feed my horses, go to school, come back. My mom always said, you can do whatever you want. Just be at the dinner table at 6 p.m. There was no negotiations possible for that. And that's the time where we bonded, where we had discussions, where we really built our family unit, even though it was just my mother, my brother and I. And, you know, so thinking back to that life, you know, I never wanted for anything. Like my life was very complete. I was crazy mm -hmm. about horses. I rode horses every night, every day after school. I used to feed my horses before school, ride after school, and my whole obsession was horses. That's where I found healing about the loss of my mm -hmm. father. That's where I found my strength. That's where I learned to be competitive. I had the cheapest, shittiest horse that my mom could find because we <laughs> didn't have money. But I was successful. I used to win competitions, and I was successful because I was determined to win. And um, so, you know, I think I took all of that work ethic and that part of my life and, and took it with me when I left at 16. Talk a little bit about how you started modeling. So you left at 16. I think I was about 15 and my girlfriend Dorothy was a hairdresser and she needed somebody with long blonde hair to braid those heads and walk in the hair show in Amsterdam, which is for us was like the big city. And I had told her when she first asked me, I said, no, you know, that's not really my thing, but thank you. So the night before that show, she called me and said, you know, my model is sick. Please come with me tomorrow. So I couldn't say no. And I went with her and it was in the middle of winter. And after the hair show was a big fashion show with Franz Molinar, which is a Dutch designer. And he saw me and one of his models was sick as well. And he said, can you walk in the show? And I'm like, well, I've never worn heels. <laughs> Very serendipitous. I've never worn makeup. Uh, I don't really know how that works. And he said, well, just come to the rehearsal. And I remember kind of going like, okay, well, they walk, they stop, they look, they turn and they go. So I'm like, okay, I'm a copycat. And I kind of, you know, they dressed me up with makeup and walked the show and I think I did pretty good because I was discovered by a scout that was scouting for his own agency in Rotterdam and also for Eileen Ford. And, you know, it was my destiny. After that show, I I went on a photo shoot a week later. Those pictures were sent out to Milan, to Paris, everywhere. And three months later, I was working all over the world. So it was something that was my destiny and it was meant to happen. And But I honestly... I'd never seen a Vogue magazine. I didn't know anything about designers, photographers. I didn't know anything about the business. And my mom just kind of, I was like, mom, like this photo shoot was not, that's kind of weird. Like you have to smile without being happy. Like I didn't quite get the concept <laughs> it was of even it. that basic, right? Of it was like, that basic. Yeah. yeah. But that one picture where I'm almost crying, like I can't do this. I can't smile when I, you know, on command, that picture, you know, got me started in mm -hmm. the, in the industry. Mm -hmm. So it, it was pretty interesting because I remember going home after the photo shoot and saying to my mom, like, okay, I don't know if this is for me. Like, and she said, you know what? You want beautiful horses. You want to be a professional equestrian, we cannot afford it. So if that's what you want, that's what you go and work for. Because the agency already told me you can make, you know, a thousand guilders a day. I mean, that was like <laughs> what I would make in a whole year. Right. So I really went into it for the money. 
yeah. and for the financial independence, but with in mind, like I remember being on the road for, you know, 28 days of the month and just making telemarks, marks going like, okay, if I do this for maybe one year, I'll go back, buy all the horses I want and going to live my happy life in Holland. Obviously. I love how pragmatic you were yeah. about it. And I bet that's part of, I mean, as beautiful as you are, part of what made you probably very different from other girls who may at that time have been, I want to be famous. and all. But even, I mean, I didn't even know what it meant to be famous because I never watched TV. We had no gossip magazines. We didn't have fashion magazines. I didn't even know what meant being famous. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in it for the money. And that's what motivated me. And and you were 16. So at 16, when you live in a tiny little town, it's hard to imagine fame. Yeah. Well, we, we're not exposed to it. Right. So, you know, we didn't have TMZ. We didn't have social media. We didn't have any of that. So yeah. it's a very different life. So you went from Holland to New York to Hollywood. And in your book, you talk about living off of rolls of quarters and staying in housing with other models. What was it like when you were finally discovered, like the the big discovery? Did it happen really quickly? Like, Well, I think the big discovery was that first test photo going out to Paris, to Milan, Mm -hmm. you know, to New York and and people responding to the picture. Mm -hmm. That's when I was like, okay, they like me like... You know, it was like a strange moment. It was like, okay, so now what do I do next? How am I going to learn to perfect this craft? How am I going to, you know, uh-huh. I'm going to make myself relevant? And, but it kind of all fell into my lap very naturally. And I was meant to be on that path. Mm. And I just ran with it. Talk a little bit about what you just said about how to perfect your craft. How do you learn how to do that in that business? You know, by that time, I already had two, three jobs. I mean, I was already making money. I was washing dishes at the Chinese restaurant. I worked at the grocery store. I did the cash register at a little shop in the town. So I was already working, making money and understanding the value of money. My mom said, you want a new saddle for your horse? That's great, but you got to work for it. So I understood that. What my mom did give me was extraordinary work ethic and not by telling me, but just always leading by example. I mean, she was impeccable with her word. She was impeccable with her, you know, work ethic, the way she ran the house, the way she took care as a single mom of her two kids. So in the early years, that's what made me successful. But how do you train to become a model? What is the education that goes into being that person? I don't think you can train to be a great model. I think you're either born with it or you're not. And I think that you can get better at it even when you're born with it. Like you perfect, you know, your angles, you know, your movement. I always say to my girls, like a great model, you can sell a garbage bag if you have to. Like in the olden times, the reason you got rebooked on, you know, for the big catalogs and stuff was all numbers. Like they would see how many clothes does this girl sell. It's very easy for a beautiful woman to look beautiful in a Dolce Gabbana, in a Chanel suit. And like, that's easy. You know, little hair, makeup, beautiful clothes. You you know, it's not that difficult. What's really difficult is making the less attractive garments look beautiful, like a million bucks, where everybody can afford it, everybody wants to buy it, and that's where being a good model comes in. And I think that's something you learn over the years, and that makes a good model. And for me, I mean, I've grown up in front of cameras. 
Like I wish I could put on a suit in the morning and run Deutsche Bank. You know, God has given all of us certain trades and certain qualities and certain things. And you have to have realistic expectations of why you are choosing, you know, what you want to do. Like I always say, if I'd gone to college and had a degree in finance, I'd be running a bank right now because that looks really attractive to me. But you know what? God didn't give me those skills. That's why I have you. That's you, right. You, you know, know what I mean? Together we're two halves of the same coin. But, so, but you yeah. know what I mean? Like I it's really important that we are authentic to who we are as a human being and that we understand our strengths and build on that. So curious, what makes some people take a great picture and other people not? You know, it's all about being authentic to who you are and creating energy to come through your eyes from your heart. And with those emotions in a picture, you know, that would make people stop at a page and go like, wow, that's a beautiful photograph. A girl doesn't need to pose. It's not about the poses. It's about the expression that really truly comes from the heart. Mm. And I think that uh, that's what sells and that's what makes a yeah. photograph special. Even how you talk about making something that's more of an available to the masses, ordinary thing, beautiful, yeah. to me seems very heart-based because you're you're endowing it with honor and beauty. Well, you know, hey, I'm just a regular Joe Smo from mm-hmm. a very small town in Holland. And mm-hmm. I, like I said, I grew up with... My mom sewing my dresses. Yeah. I didn't know Chanel from Dolce Gabbana to Gucci. And, you know, and I always felt beautiful in whatever little things she made me. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, you know, I carry that throughout my career. So beautiful. <laughs> Let's move on to Real um, Housewives of Beverly Hills, in which you appeared for four seasons. How did you get on that show? And um, what was that experience like? And why did you eventually leave? The two years before I got on Housewives, I had a show in Holland, which was called Dutch Hollywood Women. I did that for two seasons. And, you know, it was in a time of my life where I needed to get back to work. I knew Gigi was going to go off to college and I wanted to get back into my own thing. Um, and obviously I have a big audience in Holland because that's where I come from. And the people from Housewives saw me on that show and brought me in for a meeting and... um It was not a show that I ever watched. I don't watch a lot of TV. And it was funny because in my audition, they said, so what do you think of the show? And I'm like, well, I kind of saw it once and I got really shy and changed the channel because my communication skills are so different. I'm not based on drama. I'm very Dutch, very black and white. I say it as it is and I move on. And uh, so they thought that was hysterical. And they go like, you might just be the perfect girl for this job. And I watched the whole, you know, the whole show. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like intense because it's not a script show. And, you know, it's almost like a study of human character that is quite intense. Do they give you a scenario and then no, they let no, you no. just kind of it's, go off? And it's, what? No, it's, it's reality TV. There's yeah. no script. There is, you know, it might be, okay, Monday, there's a dinner, shopping, whatever. So you participate in these activities and conversation comes. And, you know, if you've seen the show, you know yeah. the rest of the story. But, you know, I really had to, after watching a couple of episodes, I remember standing in the shower and, and going, looking up to the sky thinking, why is this on my path? Mm. And why should I say yes to this show? And... You know, it just something inside of me said, you know, this this is right. You need to do it. You might be afraid and scared to get into the mix of that, but it's something that you have to explore. So I went on the show and unfortunately I got sick the first mm-hmm. season I was on. That was like the first moment that 
I knew something was really wrong with me. So I've never really been on the show in a normal state of mind. But now looking back, like maybe halfway after two years, you know, of being sick and being judged on the show about it, I also realized that God had given this to me because it gave me an extraordinary platform mm, and, sure. and an ability to connect with millions of people that suffer from invisible diseases. And uh, I just, you know, felt like I have to write this out and keep my job. That's all I could think about. I need to stay alive, keep my job so I can be financially independent. You had a dinner party at your beautiful home that I was fortunate enough to be at a few dinner parties at your house. Yeah. So I know how lovely it was. And one of the housewives made a comment about David sitting at the piano. Is at that time you were married to David Foster. And she said, oh, do we have to listen to him play? <laughs> I said, oh, my God. <laughs> You know, it's funny because people say it as they see it. And the more the girls drink, the more things are being said. And, you know, it's not always pretty. But I have to say it's a hugely successful show. And you'll be surprised of, you know, the people that actually, you know, said, oh, my God, love the show. Tell me about this person. Tell me like, <laughs> like people that you would never imagine would be watching this show. But it, it's kind of like a guilty pleasure and escape for people to look into other people's lives. So casting is important, I guess, if it's a reality show and people are being who they are yeah. in real life. Yeah. And, you know, it's hey, it, it works. It's a huge franchise. It's mm -hmm. it's has millions and millions oh of my viewers. Goodness, it's so lucrative. And you know, it's a great platform if you have a vision of what you want to do with me. For me, when I went on it, I was like, okay, I want to do business. I want to do this romance line. I had like all kinds of things lined up and I'm probably the only housewife that's never sold anything or started a business while being on the show because I was too sick to work. Mm. Let's talk about your sickness for a minute. It was dark. It was hard. I saw yeah. you when you were sick. I think that you still have moments of not being 100% yourself, but what was it like for you when you were trying to do the show at the same time as, you know, out of nowhere, finding yourself sick with Lyme, which was definitely not planned? No. No, I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a hell of a seven years. I mean, I sometimes I pinch myself every day now going like, I can't believe I'm up and running and I'm actually having another good day. But going through it, I mean, it was the deepest, darkest shithole that I've ever been in. I and saw you times where you were curled up on the couch. You couldn't yeah, move. Couldn't move. I mean, completely 100 percent. Uh, debilitated, no brain function. I mean, I wasn't able to watch TV, listen to a radio. I couldn't stand the lights. I couldn't be out in public. I mean, it was a really tough. How did you get it? You know, I don't know how I got it. I mean, I think I raised my children on a farm in Santa Barbara. We were always outdoors. But I really don't remember ever having a bullseye. I don't remember ever getting bit. I'd never heard of Lyme disease once I was diagnosed. So I don't know. The bigger question is, how do you get off of it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how do you get it? I don't know. Yeah. But how do we get rid of it? What's a bullseye? You know, maybe 50, 60 percent of the people that get bit by a, uh, by a tick get like a round circle it. with a center in it. Oh, I never knew and they that. they call that the bullseye. Can we talk a little bit about the treatment that you went through and, you know, which was... Very debilitating, expensive, excruciating, long. Yeah. Well, I think the hardest thing was to get diagnosed and going to the doctors going like something is growing in my brain. And, you know, they would look at me going like, oh, excuse me, you're raising three kids. You're doing carpooling, building a house, new relationship. Like they would give me this whole list of why I should not be feeling great. And I always said, no, you're wrong. I used to thrive on 15 balls in the air at the same time and... Why would that be any different now? It took many, many doctors. I mean, I ended up seeing 106 doctors. I think wow. I did 12, 13 countries. 
And it's hard when you, I mean, I'm a smart cookie. I mean, for somebody to say to me, no, you're fine. Here, have some antidepressant, have some, you know, anxiety medication. And I'm like, no, I'm not depressed. I've been depressed in my life. I know what depression means. So I just kept seeing all these doctors. And finally, I just completely broke out, like broke down after the first season on Housewives and couldn't even walk through the airport. And uh, I, you probably remember I was at uh, Cedars for two weeks. I do remember. And they sent me home saying, oh, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. And I was just like, no, I don't. Because I used to have circles under my eyes that came every two, three weeks, and then they would dissipate, and then they would come back. So I knew whatever was eating my brain was something that was on a cycle. Mm. But they would say, oh, you ate too much sushi, too much right. soy sauce. Like every, they always have an explanation for what's going on, yet nobody's willing to, you know, search for the underlying cause of your symptoms. How did you get the diagnosis finally? Well, finally, when they sent me home after two weeks, and I don't think I've ever felt more helpless than that moment of having the best doctors in the world test me, look after me. I mean, they turned me inside out, they even tested me for Lyme, which, you know, didn't come up and being sent home and coming home going like, I can't walk. I can't think. I couldn't put a whole sentence together. You know, I was completely debilitated and I have chronic fatigue. I mean, what does that even mean? Chron that's chronic fatigue is like an umbrella of many, many underlying causes. And, you know, I took a couple of days and I had my friend Tom at that time and I said, well, where do people go for chronic fatigue? And he researched and uh, I happened to know an old friend of mine that's been dealing with that for 15 years and we called her and she said the best specialist for chronic fatigue is in Europe, in Belgium. And so my, my friend Tom flew me to Belgium, saw the doctor and there was a clinic full of people that looked exactly the way I was feeling. And I was like, okay, whatever this means, I guess we might have kind of the same thing. And they tested me and he said, in six weeks from now, we'll call you back and give you the results. And so there was a very long six weeks because I'd gone to Belgium in a wheelchair, back in a wheelchair. I was completely, couldn't even walk through the airport. And then I got the call that, you know, I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. So that was the first confirmation of what I'd been saying for two years, that I had a bug growing in my brain, yet nobody could find it. It must have been a relief to actually have someone <laughs> diagnosed. I started crying. Then yeah, you can figure out what can we do now? I would, to, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that was the most difficult. When I finally got diagnosed, I was like, okay, what's next? What do we do now? You know, the next day I went to the hospital, they placed the port. I was on uh, IV antibiotic for like 90 days. And after 90 days, I was more sick than I was when mm -hmm. I started. And that's when I became really helpless going like, oh my God, if antibiotics is not curing this, then where do we go from here? Right. But the point of the story is that when you get diagnosed, like I've gone through cancer, with my mom three times now. And when you get diagnosed with cancer, you have a diagnosis, you have options, you do chemo, radiation for six weeks or however long. And then, you know, you do a test and you're either in remission or you're not. And then, you know, you make the next step, but there's like a beginning and an end. For people that are chronically ill with Lyme disease, there is no end to it because there's no cure. And you started at some point in time there, you had teeth where you'd had fillings taken out and all kinds of things yeah. that you wanted to get yourself where you had no foreign substances, I guess would be the Well, I, I think that as I was going, I realized that I was in this journey on my own and that I had to keep following my own intuition, no matter what any doctor told me. 
and do it all backed up by you know research and i had you know friends people that were helping me researching and you know different medication different treatments in different countries but it was my own journey and i remember years into it i saw a little movie about a murder mystery and they'd made storyboards so i made my own storyboards in the kitchen with all my diagnoses all my treatments what i had cleared what i'd not cleared and i realized that you know my body couldn't heal unless i started to deal with all the foreign objects in my body mm. and that started with my teeth i had a lot of the mercury fillings mm-hmm. which i'd really i already eliminated that also the implants that were in my mouth were metal based and i had a reversed reaction to the metal in my teeth that was constantly shutting down my immune system so i had to remove all of that it took me 3 4 years to work through all of it my implants you know i remember early on getting sick asking one of my doctors like somebody gave me a book about implants shutting down the immune system could that be true and it's now that's not true so i kind of like put the book to the side and then years after you know when we started researching there were so many lawsuits about women that got sick because of implants and the allergic reaction to silicone So once we start going down that lane, so I kind of went from the bottom, you know, down. <laughs> you know, I realized that we don't get to hear about it, but if you dig really deep, implants are a foreign object and your immune system fights it as a foreign object. Right. And if you're really healthy, that's fine, you can live with it, but you have to redo them every 10 years, like there's a whole whole story with it that we never, you know, hear about when you go and have implants at an early age. So I had to have those removed and, you know, the more stuff I started taking out and the more I went back to just being my the farm sweet girl. original self. <laughs> right. <laughs> my body was like, "Okay, I can function in this space." And I slowly, you know, got better. All the But, while having a new marriage, going through all of that, you know, and the TV show going on, watching you through the TV show, being sick with this diagnosis. And then along came Daisy. Then along came Daisy. Along yes. came Daisy. Yeah. Who seems to have been I my think life to this saver. day, right? A, yeah. a miracle worker. Yeah. Well, it's actually funny because my best friend one day and i don't remember i don't remember exactly where it was i called my girlfriend page she lives in aspen just bawling going like i cannot live one more day alone like i need you by my side and i'm usually the leader of the pack i'm the one that heals everybody gives everybody therapy and so for me to actually say that to her she was in la like you know 4 hours later and you know that was a moment where she's like oh this is a defining moment like she could see me going like i'm either going to check out because i can't deal anymore or we have to make a change so she's actually the one that found daisy who's an extraordinary healer she was uh, educated by dr klinghart who then became my doctor and um she just took me by the hand and never let go i mean she took care of me five six days a week yeah i i know in that, the beginning um, she still takes care of you and she's still often, yeah. right yeah i see her now maybe once every three What four weeks is she we call her a health advocate but when you're dead sick the way i was i mean i couldn't even make my own oh, it was terrible i would look at my protocol and i couldn't even read my own protocol i, I didn't didn't know which medicine to take in the morning what to take at night and she really taught me that you know the body changes when it's healing like they prescribe you medication that works one week yet it doesn't work the second week or the third week so we did st- learn to do everything by muscle testing and you know I saw Dr. Klinghart every 4 weeks at that time flew all the way to Seattle saw my doctor and I mean he's just 
extraordinary human that deals with Lyme patients and had Lyme disease himself. So he really understands both sides of it. And um, you get to that point, like you need help. And most like tough cookies like me, we have a hard time asking for help. It was tough. I mean, every time I would go and see you, you know, you were either, you know, up and about or curled up in your bed and couldn't get your head off the pillow. And it was so debilitating. It was like, terrible. I just couldn't get one foot in front of the other. Like my body was completely shut down. My brain, I mean, you uh, know. It was your ongoing line, my brain's not working. You need to use your brain and help me right now. Exactly. Like and I uh, could not fend for which myself. I was happy to do, by the way. Thank you. And I will love you for that forever. I mean, that's, you know, my angels. You're one of my angels. Thank and you. I don't know, you know, makes me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> me too. But it was really was tough. And all the while you're on a TV show and they're, you know, wheeling you through hospitals. And it was, it was definitely a struggle. And we looked but at you the, know, that's, that's the point of the story is that, you know, I'm alive. I just knew that God put me in this mess to create a message out of it. And I feel that, you know, that's why I shared so much without any shame or any, like people go like, oh my God, your life is on TV. The book that I wrote is just so brutally honest. But it's really important for me because I'm just, like I said, a normal person. And there's millions of people out there that suffer from the same thing that I had, mm. yet they don't have a voice. They don't have a platform. And they're just struggling every day to stay alive. So. Yeah. I mean, that's what was most beautiful to me in the few excerpts that I've read from the book, that it's almost like a guidebook in yeah. a way. It's, it's, it's like, I call it a roadmap. Yes. That's the crazy thing is like, we're not educated on many of the things that I talk about in the book. And that's why I had to talk about it so honestly, like as I was going through my journey, I would snap photos of everything. Because in my mind, I wasn't going to live. And I wanted these pictures with my body to go for research. Mm. Because I needed them to cut open my brain and show what was growing in my brain. And the pictures that I took, like from parasites, 22-inch parasites coming out of my body. To, I mean, the craziest things that I went through. I wasn't angry, but I was just so righteous and, and so wanting to prove my point. Having people out in the world saying that I had Munchausen's disease, from me actually having aliens coming out of my body, you know, I thought I have to tell this story because I've traveled all over the world because of my business. I mean, I used to sit down with the people in India on the floor, eat their food with no fear of anything that could harm me. Yet I obviously collected parasites and stuff all over the world. And at some point that, you know, had to be dealt with. And that goes back to education. When this started happening, my my housekeeper, who's from Mexico, said, Mrs. Hadid, in my country, we take an antiparasitic every three months. My mother gave it to us our whole life. And I'm like, well, why didn't I know about that? Like my mom never gave me anything for parasites. Mm -hmm. So it's a very unsexy story. And by the time my book was printed and it was sent to me at the farm, and I remember opening the page exactly on those pictures. And I went like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> what did I do? What have I done? You know, I have my mojo back now. I'm trying to date. And I'm seeing these pictures of parasites. I mean, this is just not good. But I had to give myself a little check-in, go for a walk and said, no, your ego has to be checked at the door with this. This is not about that. And you know what? I hopefully save many lives with it. People ask me, oh, is it a bestseller? How many books have you sold? I said, I don't care. It will get to the hands of those that really need it. And You're being in real, true service to all the and people be, that exactly. need to understand exactly. and, and your experience yeah. has uh, helped them Yeah, Is there immensely. any improvement in the treatment of Lyme and the cure rate of Lyme? 
No, I mean, I'm part of many different groups and foundations. And, you know, it's going to take a couple of years, but I hope by the time I leave this planet, that will be my legacy. And, and I hope I'll be part of the cure and hopefully a Lyme-free world. There is also uh, many different types of Lyme, from what I understand. There's a lot and of co-infections. What you yeah. had is the chronic kind, which just is very, very difficult to shake out of your body. Yeah. Well, it's when you get bit and you go on antibiotics, you know, in the first couple of days, you can cure it with antibiotics. It's once it goes into the chronic stage where it starts living in your organs. And in my case, it was all in my brain. That changes the whole game. I could have had it for 10 years by the time it knocked me off my socks. There's a lot of people that you know, test positive for Lyme disease that ha that have no symptoms. You weren't feeling well at your wedding. I was not. I you started were not, not feeling, feeling well then. I remember you yeah. just feeling very exhausted and yeah. tired. Yeah, I think I started not feeling good like in 2010. Yeah, so you're But wedding. you know, it's it's when you have type A personality. I was always like, come on, pull up the bootstraps, keep going. I'm raising a single mm -hmm. mom of three kids. I mean, I was in all kinds of trouble. And just, <laughs> you know what I mean? There was yeah. no time to be tired or like, oh, let me go lay in bed. No, I just wasn't an option. So living a healthy life as you are now, how susceptible are you for any setbacks or you're definitely on your way and through the way you live, you should be fine? I remember my doctor looking at me maybe four or five years into my journey, and he said, Yolanda, if you have the healing pie, 50% of that is medical. The other 50 of that is the emotional and spiritual mm -hmm. well-being. And I remember looking at him going, really? Like, I thought it was like 80 and 20. I mean, I always knew emotions and stress and all that was, you know, a big part of it. But it's literally... 50-50. So at that moment, I had to really do some self-assessments. And I went through really crazy things to get to the bottom of all of that. Not something Rebecca would probably <laughs> no, for sure. agree with or be into, but I was like, do or die. Yeah. Like I wasn't afraid of anything. Like I did ayahuasca. I did, you know, constellation therapy. I did you know, mushrooms. I mean, I did There's anything. lots of evidence showing that all of that is true and yeah. healthy, uh, helping yourself be in touch emotionally and spiritually. And, and also letting, letting go. go of a lot of yeah. things. Yeah. I mean, and, imagine me, like we talked about my dad dying at seven. I mean, that changed who I am. I mean, I used to be this beautiful, open, vulnerable little baby girl. And all of a sudden I turned into, you know, and at that point when I needed to heal, I had to let go of that. I needed to let go of looking for a man that was my, you know, somebody that was fatherly over me as well. And I had to learn to step into my own power as a woman, as a powerful woman. Mm -hmm. And a romantic one. And a romantic, powerful woman. <laughs> and sit <laughs> in some vulnerability that probably isn't that comfortable. Exactly, exactly. But so by doing this, and I'm by no means into drugs or, but these are all things that have been around for hundreds of years. And, you know, I read all the studies on it and I weighed everything out and I thought, listen, like I said, I'm in the do or die. Like I'm either going to live an amazing life to the fullest or I don't want to live. I've struggled for six years, but that's not the life I want to live. So oh, I'm so going to go for it. Two of your children have Lyme as well, but neither one of them have the same debilitating Lyme no. that you had. No. And um, which is, I mean, this is a big, this has been a big journey for you. It's been a crazy journey. And that, you know, 
I diagnosed my own children, really, uh, after they'd seen so many doctors, so many. I just had to prove it with tests and all that. But I knew intuitively that they had the same thing I had, just in a much earlier state. And, you know, thank God they were my children. I mean, right. mm-hmm. I know the path. I know right. what to do. And, you know. You have music. Mm-hmm. And you really honor your need to be in alone in my space. space. Yes. Yeah. Because life is, you know, it's busy. Like, you know, sometimes I do eight, nine, ten interviews a day and people are pulling from all kinds of directions. But I don't think my energy can flow clearly unless I'm completely in my own space. And I call it my angels. I put my light around me. And then sometimes I just listen to music, sit for five minutes alone without anybody feeding me information because I think that that's where I get my most clarity. So yes, I've learned to take that space and take that time to really honor that and acknowledge it, and I feel better after it. So, and you've right. you've put yourself in an environment now where you live that is just so stunning and so spectacular. But isn't it amazing though that you know it's kind of been a full circle of life? Like I'm back to where I started. I'm exactly back living the same life right. that I started when I was, li- you know, when I was and little. Because with lavender, authentically true to me, just right. me, where I feel good, where I feel grounded, where I feel you know joy of looking at the butterflies on my lavender field or my little eggs for my chickens, the cow feeding the cows at six in the morning. Like I get up, snow, rain doesn't matter. I'm on my little tractor going to feed my cows, you know, 6.30 in the morning. People are like, are you crazy? Like, can't you pay somebody? I'm like, no, that's my joy. Like, I don't miss a sunrise. I don't miss a sunset. Like, I've just found joy in going back to the simple things of life. And for me, that is connected to the earth. When you called me that day and you said, okay, don't say no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most yeah. of my conversations with Yolanda start with, don't say no. Don't say no. This is really important <laughs> to me. It's amazing that your journey brought you back around to discover what is so authentic Import, yeah. about yourself and important to you through such a tough Yeah, but maybe that, that was, through. you know, this was the higher purpose of my journey was, you know. Maybe the to, higher purpose of your life to have gone yeah. through this. Yeah, bring it back around to who you truly yeah. are and share all of this with the world. Yeah. And most other people haven't gone through what you've gone, had the yeah. resources and the yeah. strength of heart to yeah. learn everything there is about trying to figure out what was wrong. Yeah. And there like, were so many things, everybody. you know, there were so many things wrong. Like I said, I mean, I used to eat sushi three, four or five days a week, obsessed for many, many years. I haven't had sushi in three years now. You know what I mean? Not right for me. I learned about all the preservatives in the food. I learned that, you know, the medications made by, you know, the pharmaceuticals were not working for me. I mean, like I said, anything from the outside that I put in my perfectly good body that God gave me, I started, you know what I mean? Like you go through this whole trip of learning what's true and and what's authentic to you and, you know, how you're meant to live. You have wildly successful daughters who are as sweet as can be, the both of them. Can we spend a minute talking about this? If I see my strength, my inner strength is something that a lot of it I learned from my mom by watching my mom. And I think as a mother, you know, the mother-daughter relationship is just so important. And I think in today's world with electronics, the texting, the, the TVs, the, the constant thing, like we are losing connection to those who are most important to us. And I think we are losing the art of communication and we don't know it all. We're just human beings. Mm. Just because we're a mom, we don't know it all. We make mistakes. We are learning as we go. We always do our best. 
And the only thing I can guarantee you is that nobody loves you like your mother. And that's the only guarantee you can put in the bank. You know, women, we are here to work together. Behind every successful woman is a whole tribe of other women. We can't do it alone and on our own. And it, it takes a village. And I don't like competitiveness. Like, you need to be authentic to you and be the best version of yourself. And that's how you're going to get successful. I remember having Gigi talk about how you taught her to always be polite mm -hmm. and to be appreciative when the photographer would come into the room and, you know, be as sweet and nice and not grumpy as you could possibly be. Well, and that's and something she credits to, you for teaching her that. Yeah. I suspect that there was more teaching, but she Well, I think that, you know, when you have discussions with your children and their dreams, it's not about what we want as mothers, about their dreams. I always said to Gigi and Bella, I said, listen, there's a million girls that are much more beautiful than you are in this industry that you're choosing to be in or want to be in. And they deserve success as much as you do. Because we're all equals. There's nobody better than somebody else. So how are you going to set yourself apart? And that's the big question. And I always said the way you can set yourself apart is to always be kind to everybody on set, not just the photographer who can help you climb your the ladder of your career, but to the person that brings the lunch, that cleans the floor, the valet parker, the driver, like everybody. Because at the end of the day, somebody will remember how you make them feel. They won't remember your pretty face. And the other thing I remember you saying is be on time. Always be the first one be on, on the job. Time. Because that shows respect. You yeah. know, like your, my mom always said, your time isn't more valuable than anybody else's. Mm -hmm. You better be on time or give me a call that you're in the hospital. Otherwise, there is absolutely <laughs> no excuse for being late. Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance on that. Mm. Your girls are very lucky to have had a mom like you <laughs> mm. to teach them all of these things in the business that they're in. You know, they've taught me a lot, too. I think at it now, it's like I learn a lot from my kids every day and their generation and how they function in this crazy world that is very different than the world I grew up in. And you know what? They've did it all on their own. I always said to the girls, nobody's in the modeling industry until you turn 18. And they fought me, especially Gigi at 16. Mommy, there's so many girls at 16 working. And I'm like, but not you. Trust me, I grew up in this industry and you're not working right now. You're playing volleyball, flip-flops, ride your horses, have boyfriends, fall in love, fall out of heartbreaks, whatever you need to go through. When you're 18, I will find you an agency in New York, get you in the door, and then you're on your own. And I waited. And now she often looks at me and says, Mommy, thank you for giving me those extra two years mm. to strengthen and find who it is that I am as a woman, young woman in this world, because I could have not handled this kind of fame at age 16. I just never wanted anybody judging my girls on the way they looked before they could handle that, you know, right. and before they understood who it is that they are as a human being. So even though I didn't want my daughters to start until they were 18 because of my own experience in the industry, we realized that every teenager on the planet, or most of them, have the dream of wanting to be a model. And that doesn't mean these girls are going to be a supermodel because most of them at an early age, 13, 14, 15, 16, they're still growing. Like we don't even know what height they're going to be. And there really is not a lot of work for children that age. But it was more about the mother-daughter relationship and for a mother to, yes, embrace your daughter's dream yet also giving them realistic expectations. Do you feel your girls are pretty grounded? 
My girls are very grounded. I think that that's their strength. And mm -hmm. that was also the reason that, you know, I mean, I'm a single girl like me getting back on a 32-acre farm by myself, not really something that I had planned, but I just felt that I needed that space in order to ground my children and remind them of their childhood and and a space where they can be authentic, ride their horses, walk around with no paparazzi, flip-flops, and be free. Because, you know, your life becomes very small being under that microscope 24-7, you know, and no soul can handle that for a very long periods at a time. So it's a sanctuary. Really. It's a sanctuary, yeah. Pretty Thank straight. you. Thanks for sharing your story. Next on Say It Forward. He's a musician, composer, songwriter, and record producer who's worked with some of the biggest selling music performers in the world. Whitney Houston, Jennifer Lopez, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Celine Dion, and Barbara Streisand, just to name a few. He's a musical genius who's produced some of the biggest selling multi-platinum records of all time. So get ready as 16-time Grammy Award winner and music industry legend David Foster steps up to the mic. We'll discover how he became one of the most prolific creative collaborators and highest achievers the music business has ever known when he shares with us what it takes to unlock your inner talent. So join us as we rewind to the beginning with David Foster on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram.